you would, turn with me to Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. We're going to be reading this morning um, all the way through chapter 4, verse 7. That's what we're studying this morning. And actually, for the sake of um, context, we're going to start in verse 25, where we left off last week. Um, you know, living in Orlando, uh, I live about 11 hours from my, where I grew up. And my, all my family is still back there. So my, my mom and my dad, uh, my sister's a couple hours from there, my, both my grandmother's um, aunts and uncles, things like that. So, you know, once a year, twice a year for fortunate, uh, something like that, we try to make the trip back, visit people, and, uh, and hang out. And when I go back, I, we always stay at my parents' house. I don't get a hotel. We stay at my parents' house. We, uh, we, we take over my old room, basically, right? And even when my, when my sister comes into town for Christmas, like we're all there, right, uh, in the upstairs quadrant uh, of, our, um, of, our, of our old house. And when I go downstairs to the refrigerator, uh, I don't ask before I open the refrigerator. I just open the refrigerator. Uh, when I need ice, I just get ice. When I need a drink, I get poor drink. When I need, if I want a scoop of peanut butter, I go open the peanut butter and I'll take a scoop of peanut butter and, and I don't know I don't really think about it I might even lick that thing and stick it right back in there because as far as I'm concerned I'm at home and now that's not really my literal home anymore right it's here in Orlando but family always just feels like family there's a comfort level there things are different I wouldn't go to your house and lick the peanut butter spoon and stick it back in there um, and I wouldn't stick my hands in your refrigerator without asking nor would I come over without asking or anything like that uh, but it's just different when it's mom and dad just like I know it's probably maybe that way for you and for your kids or grandkids and things of that nature family is different and one of the most profound things the Bible tells us is that in Christ Jesus God considers believers in Jesus family that he actually wants you to call him father and that he calls us sons and daughters, the, the very children of God, that we are considered the family of God. That's an incredibly profound thing when you consider the holiness of God, when you consider the greatness of God, the power of God, the authority of God, the omnipotence of God, just all the big words we can pull out of the Bible to describe God's character, his worth, his value, and to say, man, in Christ, he wants us to call him father the word literally we'll see this morning is Abba. It means daddy. And that he wants us to consider him our father. He considers us his children. That's an incredible picture of intimacy that the Bible gives us for the local church, for the church at large in Jesus. Now all of humanity is experiencing rather than that family nature and that relationship with God, all of humanity is experiencing something totally different. They're experiencing slavery to something. Whether it's slavery to religion or whether it's slavery to lawlessness, whatever it is, that's what humanity's experiencing that are apart from God, apart from Christ Jesus. But we're made to experience being his sons and daughters, being his children. We're just as little children are made for a family and they flourish best in a family with a mom and a dad taking care of them and looking out for them. We know that's God's design and we know that's where they flourish best. In the same way, hum human beings flourish best in family with our heavenly father as our provider and as our protector and as the one we go to and depend on and pray to and all those sorts of things. But what we're experiencing apart from Christ is something radically different. It's actually being enemies of God. It's being separated from God. It's being slaves to something else. But in Christ, we find family. And that's what God is restoring and doing in Jesus. 
He's bringing us back into his design. He's restoring his design, which is that we would relate to him as our heavenly father in Christ. We are delivered from slavery and made family. And the most fundamental question of life is what is your relationship to God and God's relationship to you? Are you in the family? Are you one of his children? Does, can you call him father? Does he say it's okay for you to call him father? Does he consider you a child of God? And this morning we're going to explore what it looks like to be in the family of God and some of the truths that come out of that this morning, some very fundamental things that as Christians we need to constantly be encouraged in. And for those of us maybe this morning who are not at that place of belief or that place of faith, we need to be invited to come into this morning. So look with me at Galatians 3, starting in verse 25. Galatians 3, 25. But now faith, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. That's where we left off last week. Verse 26, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now let's pause there. Brief explanation. In verses 25 and 26 of that passage, Paul is communicating to the Jewish Christians of that day that they're no longer under that guardian of the law that God had given to the Jewish people. In fact, all believers are now sons of God through faith. There's a new relationship that's taking place. In verse 27, Paul is recalling their baptism. Baptism was something every Christian participated in in the first century. Uh, and when, when every Christian that believed on Christ Jesus was baptized and proclaiming that relationship with God. More about that later. It was the outward sign of their inward faith. And then he says they've put on Christ. He says we've put on Christ. That's where calling for them very possibly the, the baptismal garments they may have put on. And the idea is that we're clothed in Christ. He is our new identity. He's our everything. Verse 28, when he says there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What he's saying is Jesus has changed everything, even the fundamental structures of their world as they knew it were being affected by Christ. And in verse 29 he says, he picks back up where we left off last week. It is the Christians, it is the believer in Christ who inherit the promise of Abraham. Been grafted into that promise, as Romans would tell us, through Christ Jesus. Now, look at chapter 4, verse 1. He's going to explain further what he means about this idea that we are sons of God. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, that particular section is heavily focused, first and foremost, on the Jewish Christians who were under the guardian of the law until Christ. But it has application for everybody, Jew and Gentile alike. We've all been a, a, adopted into Christ through faith in him. And he said, you see the word there, adoption, right? You receive adoption as sons. We're not, in other words, we're not naturally children of God. God is not the father of all people. He's the creator of all people. But he... 
He reserves the title of father for his spiritual children, those who have repented of their sin and placed their faith in Jesus Christ. He's the creator of all. But he is the father, the spiritual father of only the redeemed, those who have been taken in by God through adoption in Christ Jesus. And you look back at verse 26, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God. That's where it all changes, right? It's in Christ Jesus that we're sons of God. That's the difference on who's a child of God, who's not a child of God, who's in the family, who's not in the family. Are you in Christ Jesus? The entire family relationship hinges on those two words, in Christ. Peter tells them they had been under the law, but now they're in Christ. That They had one reality, now they've got a new reality. And we've all got an old reality before Christ and a new reality in Christ. Whatever we were enslaved to or impassioned by versus the one that we call our Lord now and that we've come under His authority. And being in Christ, just that phrase, it evokes intimacy. It's a relational term. He's talking about a whole new reality where Christ is our righteousness, our identity. We have put Him on like clothes, He said. He covers us. We are joined with Him. We are in union with Him. And we have an inheritance and a new standing with God that's rooted with being in Him. That's the difference. It's the difference of being forgiven or unforgiving, right with God or not right with God. It all comes down to whether or not we are in Christ. And the only way to be in Christ is to, have to place our faith in Christ. Now, and all of that totally changes our relationship with God where we go from being enemies and outside of God's family looking in to being rebels to being sons and daughters of God. Now, I want to kind of pull back from this passage this morning and give us three big overarching truths about the family of God, okay? Number one, adoption in Christ has made believers children of God. That's the first, just the big idea, right? Through adoption in Christ, we are made God's children. That is the really driving force of these several verses. Now, the interesting thing is when you read that, you might say, now why did it translate it sons of God and not children? Is he only talking about the men? Is he not talking about the women too? Is that what he's getting at when he talks about the, the male and female and all that sort of stuff being done away with? What in the, no, 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 we're going to explain that in a minute. It's very important though. We, we might say, well, I want a translation that calls it Children of God, not sons of God. And if you find one like that, they didn't do a good job here. Because it's critical to the passage that we translate as sons. Because that's what made it groundbreaking in their day. Because it was the sons who got the inheritance. So it's earth-shattering in their day for him to say, we all get the inheritance in Christ. Male, female, it doesn't matter. It's all equal at the foot of the cross. We all inherit from God. We all have the rights and privileges and honor that comes with being, it came only with being sons in their culture. God bestows it upon all of his children. So it's important that we understand that. So in their day, it was the sons who got the inheritance. So that's what he's talking about. But he is talking about being children of God, but with a special emphasis on the inheritance rights. And what he's saying here is, as believers in Christ, we actually have a whole new identity. That being sons and daughters of God gives us a brand new identity in God's family that comes with privileges, it comes with responsibilities, right? It comes with all of that. And so when you ask the questions as we, as, we, as we read through Galatians and you hear us talking about being free and we talk about freedom, and you say, well, just how free is a Christian? You're as free as sons. You're as free as daughters of God. You're as free as family. That's how free we are. As I said at the beginning, that's pretty free. But before Christ, we were slaves. And you look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4, He's highlighting that. This passage first tells us specifically, as I mentioned, about the Jewish Christians, but it also begins to show us that all of life before Jesus is enslavement. 
We'll talk about this more next week. But all of life, whether you are Jew or Gentile, under the law or not under the law, didn't know anything about the law, all of life outside of Christ is some form of enslavement. And Paul is illustrating with the idea of someone who is not yet old enough to receive the inheritance they were supposed to receive. That's the illustration there when he's talking about as long as he's a child, he's no different from a slave because he is... Though he is the owner of everything, he's under guardians and managers. He, he's painting this picture of someone who's not old enough yet to receive their inheritance. So a guardian's been put in place, right? Until they can get the inheritance. So they're old enough to not, you know, spend it foolishly. And he's saying, God considers us mature sons. It's not even just a picture of little children. It's a, it's the, it's a picture of mature sons that you entrust with things. That's the picture here. And the term, elementary principles of the world, that's an interesting term that we're going to park on a little bit more next week. But let me just say this. This was for the, for Jews, it was their enslavement to the law. And for the Gentiles, it was enslavement to whatever pagan religion they were involved in before Christ. In other words, it's life before Christ. And the phrase actually can carry some ideas of demonic overtones. And the point being, whether trying to keep the Mosaic law in our own power to justify ourselves... Or adhering to some other form of idolatry, legalism, dead religion, life outside of Christ in any way, lawlessness, law, whatever, anything outside of Christ is slavery. It's slavery. And it pleases Satan when we're outside of life in Christ. And slavery is a picture of the lack of rights and the lack of freedom. Whereas being a child of God, a son and heir is about inheritance, freedom, new motivation, a whole new realm of living. And in verse 4, he tells us, in order for us to be made sons of God, for us to become children of God, God had to send His Son. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. The fullness of time. In other words, just the right time according to God's plan. Jesus didn't come too late. He didn't come too early. He was the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. It wasn't some flippant idea. This was planned by God. From before He ever breathed life into Adam, He knew His Son would come. Jesus was not plan A. I mean, excuse me, not plan B. He was plan A. He was plan A. The cross was always plan A. And at the fullness of time, God's plan goes into action. Jesus comes. And he's born of a woman. For us to be part of God's family, right? God had to become a man. That's what he's saying there. The son of God. Son of man. Jesus, God in the flesh. And Jesus is the Son of God who became a man, the God-man. He's born of a woman, but not just any woman, a Jewish woman. He said he's born under the law. To redeem those under the law, he had to be born under the law. To fulfill the righteous requirements of the law, he comes in under the law and perfectly obeys the law where you and I do not and where they did not. And he uses the word redeem there, to redeem those who are under the law. That, that's a picture. That word, as we said, I think it was last week, that's rooted in their slave market at that time. It's the idea of buying back. And re- that's what Jesus has done. He's bought us back. Jesus bought, redeemed, purchased his people out of slavery. Whether that's slavery to the law or lawlessness, Jesus redeems us out of that, makes us his, makes us God's children. But we're adopted children. See, it was normal in their day to actually adopt an adult male to receive your inheritance. If, like if you didn't have, maybe you didn't have children and you didn't know what was going to happen with your inheritance and you wanted to ensure it went to where you wanted it to go, they would, it wasn't unusual to adopt a male child, a, 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 a male adult as your child to give the inheritance to. And what we see here is this picture, in, in this picture of adoption, is this idea of 
outside, now inside, and everything changes. Not an heir, now an heir. No resources, now we have resources. No privileges, now we have privileges. One identity, new identity. Everything changes. I have a friend who a few years ago um, adopted a little boy um, from China. And so this little boy was over in another country, special needs child in a special place where, and, and, and looking, needing a home. And so my friend and his family, motivated by the gospel, motivated by a desire to, to love as Jesus calls us to love and a desire to portray the gospel to people, they, they go through the adoption process. And what did they have to do? They had to get on an airplane and they had to go to the other country, right? And spend some time there and get that child and bring him back. And he comes back and he is fully invested with all the rights of being their child. He shares their name and he has new rights and new privileges He's a, he's, a, he, he's a citizen in a new land. Everything's different. His whole reality is different. Life is radically different for this child because somebody went and got him. And he's saying, this is what happened to you in Christ. He came and got you. He came to your land. Your land. He, he came to us, to our broken world. Became one of us. Yet remained sinless and died for us so that he might bring us into his family and give us a whole new identity, a whole new reality with new privileges and new resources and a new future and a new name. All that rooted in Christ. It's an extreme picture of before and after. And while a slave outside of God's will were separated from God and, in, and enemies of God even, the Bible tells us in other places, in Christ were sons and friends of God, the Bible tells us. And it means we can approach God with confidence, right? Jesus says, when you pray, you pray like this, our Father. I imagine when he said that, the disciples went, huh? He says, oh, you pray, our Father. Approach God with confidence. You, it means you live in dependence. He's our Father. We look to him for provision and for protection. And, and it means we should walk in obedience because he is our Father. And just as children should obey their parents, we should obey our Heavenly Father. So it means all those things and so much more. Through adoption in Christ, God has made believers as children. Second big idea is this. Adoption in Christ has created a diverse and unified family. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew or Greek or slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ. Now, he's saying this. Don't you recall your baptism? which was symbolic of your actual immersion in Christ. When you put your faith in Christ, you're immersed in Christ. Remember that phrase from verse 26? You're in Christ, through faith in Christ. Now what he's not saying here is the baptism saves you in some way. He's just spent like the first three chapters telling us that our works can't save us. What he is saying, it was so closely tied to belief at that time. And it was the symbol, it was the picture, it portrayed their union with Christ. And in being united to Christ through faith as pictured in baptism, we are also united to all those who believe in Him and have been immersed in Christ. The barriers have been torn down. So when you come to Christ, you don't just get a new father, you get a whole new family, is the picture here. The gospel unites all believers into one body. And it nullifies the world's way of dividing us. Do you know in their day, let me read this to you, this is interesting. In their day, many Jews would pray this prayer. Blessed is he that he did not make me a Gentile. Talking to God. Blessed is God that he did not make me a Gentile. Blessed be he that he did not make me a boar 
or a slave is what that means. And blessed be he that he did not make me a woman. That's what men would say when they got up in the mornings many times. That's how they'd start their day. You say, well, that sounds horrible. Well, the rights of women were not very good in those days. And they were, that's what they were praying. Now think about that. That common prayer, Paul just blows it up. And he used the gospel to do it. In Greek writings, you'll see writings about gratitude. And they would be thankful that, quote, I was born a human being and not a beast. Next, a man and not a woman. And thirdly, a Greek and not a barbarian. So whether Jew or whether Gentile, there was a lot of pride associated with these three categories. Of race, money, and sex. Good thing people don't struggle with pride in those areas today. <laughs> right? We've, we've evolved from that, right? No, 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 we've, we're devolving. <laughs> it's no better than it was. But what Paul wants us to see is that the gospel kills racial pride and bias. The gospel destroys economic pride and bias. The gospel abolishes sexism. It unites us into one body and makes us into a community that should be a model to the world. A picture of family. So take race for instance. Racism is not new or he wouldn't have addressed it then. Paul says the ground is level at the cross. In Christ it doesn't matter if you are Jewish or not Jewish. He says we're all his children. And it doesn't matter if you're white or a person of color. In Christ we are all one. There is no superior race. There is no place for division over race in Christianity. The gospel makes us one people. The Christian race. Think class, for instance. Or slave versus free. This is economic statuses and things of that nature in their day symbolizing this. It was earth-shattering for him to be saying that the class structures that divide us were coming down in Christ. He's saying... The very social structures that make up much of the social fabric of their day is coming down in Jesus. There's no place to think that you're better or above someone because of your money or your social standing, is what he's saying. And then you get to the topic of gender. As I mentioned earlier, women didn't have the rights that they have in our culture. Women were considered inferior to men. And Paul is saying there's no place for that kind of division. A man is not better than a woman. And that was groundbreaking in his day. He's not saying gender isn't significant, though. He's not saying that we aren't different or that we don't have different roles. He is saying that there's not a favored gender. That both genders are made in the image of God and image God in distinct ways. And the point is not that we're all the same and that all these realities no longer exist. Of course they exist. For instance, race is a real thing. It didn't go away. Saying I'm colorblind, for instance. People say, oh, I'm colorblind. Well, that doesn't make you not a racist. It makes you either a liar, or maybe you actually are colorblind, or it makes us naive and trite. It's still there. We're not all to be the same, but rather we're all to be one. Our races exist, but they don't divide us. That's the point. The point's not supposed to be I'm colorblind. The point's I'm not colorblind, and it doesn't matter. I love everybody the same. We're all equal in Christ Jesus. We're all, we're all made in the image of God. But my race is not what ultimately defines me. Who I am in Christ is. And the church is always meant to be a multiracial, multicultural, unified body. Unity and diversity. That's the church. It's beautiful. And the world's always needed it. And our nation still needs it today. Money. Think about that one for a minute. That's an easy topic. 
listen, some people have more money than other people. Some people have bigger houses, nicer houses, and drive nicer cars. Some people have more money in their bank accounts than you. Unless you're the richest person in the world, there will always be somebody with more money than you. And unless you're the poorest person in the world, there will always be somebody with less money than you. All those things are realities in this life. But Paul is saying that can't divide us. And your status and your social status and none of that makes you better or, or worse than someone else. Nobody should be made to feel less than for what they have or for what they don't have. And gender. God made our gender on purpose. When he says there's no longer male or female, you have to take it in context of what he's talking about. That verse has been abused. People will take verses out of the New Testament and just make them mean whatever they want to mean. It's blasphemous, really. It's God's word. Take it for what it means. Look at it in context. He doesn't mean the genders have been done away with even more than he means that race has been done away with. It's still here. And so are genders. And God, they're a part of God's original design. And your gender matters to God. My gender matters to God. And God assigns my gender. And both genders are made in God's glory. Paul is not saying gender doesn't matter. He is saying sexism is a sin. And something that should not be in the life of a Christian. But we're in Christ, the design is being restored. It's a design that's complementary. A design where male and female complement one another. Not compete with one another. And the overall point of the section is that in Christ, there's nothing that should divide us. Not race, not money, not social class. We aren't to look down on others. We're, we're to be one family. We're all different, and that's okay, because we're all one. And it's a diverse family. Is your family all the same? Do they all do the same thing? No, you, you have something in common, your DNA. But you have a lot of things you don't have in common. And that's what we have here in the church. And listen, in family sometimes, we'll just hang out because we're family. Right? You go home for Christmas, there are people there that you'll hang out with, and you'll spend hours talking to, that if you weren't related to them, man, you would just walk right past them. Because <laughs> you don't have anything in common with them. Maybe you live in different places, you have different hobbies, you have different things. Some of them might even get on your nerves, don't tell nobody. I don't know. But because we're family, we just hang out. Because we do have something in common. We have common stories, right? We talk about grandma or aunt so-and-so or uncle so-and-so or growing up over here or this thing that happened 20 years ago. And there are things that you share with people in your family that nobody on the outside of the family understands or gets. You see the world a specific way through the lens of your family. It's not our political tribe. It is not our cultural tribe that should, people should mainly know us by. It's our spiritual tribe. And it's the gospel people. It's the Jesus people. It's the family of God. It's the Christians. And we are connected in a way that we can't even connect with those outside of that family. We share stories that other people can't even relate to, like the new birth. That's what he's driving at here. That's what he's driving at. And this section, when you peel back from it, it really reveals a couple of ways that the children of God, the family of God is marked. Right? Two ways that sonship is marked. One way it's confirmed and one way it's proclaimed, I guess you would say. Look at our third idea here. The third big idea is that adoption in Christ is marked inwardly and outwardly. Adoption in Christ is marked inwardly and should be marked outwardly. 
Inwardly, it's marked by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. As surely as God sent Jesus into the world to die for your sins, if you believe in Christ, He has sent the Spirit of His Son into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. The sons, the children of God, get the Holy Spirit. Notice, God sent His Son, and He sent His Spirit. Working together here, the entire Trinity is involved in our salvation. The Father sending the Son, sending the Spirit, the Holy Spirit coming into our hearts. God's family is a, is a supernatural family. And one of the things that we've experienced, nobody else has experienced, is the new birth and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Him coming to indwell our hearts. See, it's in the heart where change occurs. The Spirit of God comes into your heart, he says. It's important because all through the New Testament, Jesus has told us, the apostles are telling us, the Bible tells us that it's the heart that determines everything about us. Where we go, what we do, what we choose. Uh, the, the, the very seat of just all, all of our desires and everything is the heart. Heart is where decisions is made. and Heart is where life change must happen if it's to stick and to be real. And it's in your heart where he says the Spirit comes. And that's how racism gets killed. And that's how sexism gets killed. And that's how classism gets killed. The Spirit kills it. He takes up residence in your heart. He takes the gospel and He rebuilds love and unity and oneness with the people of God and love towards your fellow man. And It's the Spirit working in our hearts. And the Spirit changes how we relate to God. He says, He cries out, Abba, Father. The Spirit cries out, Abba, Father. Sealing us, confirming us. This is your child, Father. And at the same time, He invites us into that same prayer as we now pray to God, our Father. It's an intimate term, as we said earlier. It's kind of like our term for, for daddy, but at the same time, not too childish because it was a term that adults would use as well to refer to their father. It's, it's not cold, it's warm. It's not contractual, it's relational. So for the Christian, God is not the man upstairs. He's not the, the big guy in the sky. He's not some nameless, distant being who makes wishes you make wishes to. He's our Father, intimately involved in our lives. The Father of our Lord Jesus. The one we look to, pray to, lean on, depend on. It's personal. That's what I want you to see. That's what He wants us to see. The Spirit makes this personal. In Romans 8, 15 and 16, Paul said this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. See, he cries out to God, but he also cries out to you. He lets you know that you're a child of God. See, the, the spirit of slavery leads to fear, he says in Romans 8. That's not sonship. But we have the spirit of adoption. The Holy Spirit who marks us as adopted children. Crying out on our behalf and crying out to us that we are God's children. And he is the one who bears witness to us and marks us that we are God's children. Listen, somebody comes to you and they say, I don't know if I'm really a Christian or not. The proper response is not, oh sure you are, I was there. I remember when you prayed that prayer. I remember when you got baptized. I remember when you got the... Not your job to confirm their salvation. The Spirit does it. The Spirit does it. He does it. So what if they're really struggling with it? A, they may not be a believer. That's always a possibility if it... Because it, you don't know their heart. And I don't know their heart. The Bible says our heart's so wicked that we don't even know it well. Right. Secondly, I don't know why they're going through that. 
We don't know why they're going through that. But we do know this. What they really need is for the Holy Spirit to minister to their heart more than they need me to tell them something that they're going to forget in a week or two and be right back in the same place. So what do we do? We point them to the Scriptures. We share the Gospel with them. We walk through the Gospel with them. We pray with them. We talk to them about it. We ask God. God, confirm in their heart that they're children of God. Let your and what the Spirit does is He takes the Word of God and He uses that, the sword of the Spirit, to confirm that to our hearts. And all of a sudden, you're reading one day and you go, man, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And the Spirit just, that's you. All those who are in Christ Jesus, the Spirit says, that's you. Holy Spirit does that work. It's one of His ministries to us. He confirms our sonship. And we shouldn't try to take that away from Him. And miss sometimes what happens in the struggle, in the wrestling, in the praying, in the, trying to seek these things out, making our calling and election sure. Allow God to do what God does. And the Holy Spirit fundamentally changes how we relate to God. Right? Just that, just that whole term. A father-son relationship. If, if God's treated like a distant figure, if he's treated like a, some miser in the sky, some cosmic killjoy, then maybe we've missed something. Because the spirit of our adoption, the spirit of adoption, the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit changes us to see God as our Father. A loving, compassionate, heavenly Father. It's the inward confirmation. But there's also an, it's outwardly proclaimed. When, when we're children of God, we're supposed to outwardly proclaim it. And that's done through baptism. Back up in verse 27 of chapter 3. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. Baptism is the external marker. It doesn't make us part of God's family. It does, however, display to others that we are a part of God's family. And every child of God has the inward confirmation of the Holy Spirit. And they should have the outward marker of baptism. They may not, but they should. We are baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit when we believe. And we are to display that outwardly through water baptism. It's an external, an external illustration of an inward change. Okay? And so, when Christy and I got married. Used this illustration before. This wedding ring went on my hand. Okay? Didn't make me married. If I take it off, I'm not unmarried. But it displays for everybody that I am married. Okay? So that's, that's why we wear it. it, it's, it but it... But it would be silly to just say it's just a symbol. It means a lot more to me than that. It was involved, it was there at the ceremony. It's more of a proclamation. It's a lot more than just a symbol. None of this is just anything, right? As I heard somebody say, the gospel's not just a story, and the Bible's not just a book, and baptism is not just a symbol. These are all things from God that God has ordained. And when we come to Christ, we turn from our sin and we place our faith in Christ, right? What happens is, the moment we realize we're a sinner, that Christ died for us and that He rose from the dead, and that we need a Savior, and that Jesus is that Savior, that He paid our sin debt on the cross, and that He rose from the dead, and there's nothing I can do to save myself, and only Jesus can save me, and I realize that, and I turn from my sin, best way I know how, in my heart, I turn to God, in Christ, away from sin, to Jesus, and I place all my faith and trust in Jesus to save me, believing only what He's done can save me, believing there's nothing I can do to remove my sin or make myself right with God, believing that Jesus died in my place and rose from again, and I rest in Him by faith. I'm immersed in Christ. He becomes my identity. When God looks at me, He sees the righteousness of Jesus, right? And what baptism does 
it's, is it helps us declare that inward reality outwardly to others. It's, it's an act of obedience because Jesus told us to do it. He did it himself. He told us to do it. He commanded us to baptize people. The Great Commission. So it's a big deal. So baptism's not that big a deal. Oh, really? Like Jesus gave us like one big thing. And it was make disciples. And he said, here's how you do it. Baptizing and teaching. Right? It is a big deal. Right? It's a really big deal. It's public identification with Christ. We're declaring to the world, to all those that are there, we belong to Jesus. He belongs to us. We are, we are in Him. When He died, we died. When He rose, we rose. And it, it shows that we have put on Christ. It's the display of that. Listen, you can be baptized and not have Jesus. But you shouldn't have Jesus and not be baptized. The world is full of people who have been baptized and do not know Christ. But it should be unheard of for a Christian to be unwilling to follow through with baptism. It's a declaration of our allegiance to Jesus. It was a big deal in their day because it was, you're supposed to be, Caesar was Lord. That's the way people thought in that day. And it was radical and revolutionary to get baptized in the name of Jesus declaring He is your Lord. And it's just as revolutionary in our day. Because people are, declare a lot of things as their master, their Lord, and their boss. If nothing else, their self. And we get baptized saying, no, Jesus is my Lord. He's who I'm aligned with. My allegiance is to Him. And it pictures, it pictures the gospel. When we plunge somebody under the water, that they have been united with Him in His death and burial. When we raise them up, they have united with Him in His resurrection to walk in newness of life. And we baptize people by immersion, first of all, because that's what the word means. Okay, That's not to offend anybody. It's just in the Greek, it means to put under. <laughs> so we're just trying to be as literal as possible. So that's why we do it by immersion. And so there's that, and also it, it pictures best what happens in the gospel. And that's part of what it is. It's a, it's a picture of what happened to us in Christ. And no other form of baptism quite shows it like that does. That's not a knock on other people. That's just trying to explain to you as, in our church why we baptize the way we baptize. And it's only for believers is the way we understand Scripture. Every example we have in the Scripture of somebody being baptized, it's a believer. So if you're here this morning and you've been saved, but you have not been baptized... If you've trusted Christ, but you've never been immersed in water since that, you need to know you need to be baptized. Why? To, to declare to others. First of all, it's an act of obedience, but to declare to others that you are a part of the family of God. You say, well, I've, I've told people that. Yeah, but biblically the way we tell people that is baptism. That is, Jesus is Lord. If Jesus is Lord, he calls the shots. And he says, you proclaim it through baptism. If, you're, if you say, well, I was saved... I was baptized when I was like 11. And then I didn't really understand the gospel and really believe till I was like 18. Do I need to get baptized again? No. You need to get baptized. Because <laughs> the first time, we meant well. But all that happened was we got wet. And I don't mean that to criticize. I'm just saying, if we really believe that it's the proclamation of, I am in Christ... He is in me. I am aligned with Him. I am unified with Him. Hey world, here it is to see. Jesus is my Lord. If that wasn't true when it happened the first time, then we kind of missed the point, right? And so, yes, we need to get baptized again. But really what we need, well, it's, our, it's really, it is the baptism. It is the act of obedience. So, yes, that's important. It's a matter of obedience. And if we willfully rebel from God in this area, we can grieve the Spirit of God. If we willfully rebel from God in the outward symbol that we're in the family, you can grieve the inward confirmer that you're in the family. Because he's the third 
excuse me, the second person of the Trinity. Third person of the Trinity. So he can be grieved. He can be rebelled against. He can be, he's not just some thing. He is God, the Holy Spirit. And when we willfully rebel against what the word that he has inspired commands us to do, then yes, we can, in fact, grieve him. All those in the family of God have the inward mark of the Spirit. And all those in the family of God should have the mark of baptism. Do you have it? And do you have it in the right order this morning? Here's how I want to close. I want to ask you three questions. As we go into a time of prayer in just a moment, as we sing together. First of all, are you in God's family? Is God your Father? That's only true if you're in Christ. There's been a moment in time where you turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus. His death, burial, and resurrection. You're trusting Him and Him only. And He radically saved you. Has that happened to you? Do you have the Holy Spirit confirming that in your heart? Second question. Believer. How's your relationship with your father? And maybe one that better manifests that. How is your relationship with your brothers and sisters? When there is turmoil in the family, it grieves the heart of God. No more than any daddy wants to see his grown children fight and bicker does God the Father want to see his sons and daughters fight and bicker? How's your relationship within the family of God? We are called to peace. And thirdly, have you been immersed as a believer? If not, I invite you to allow us to know that this morning on this connection card, and we'll just contact you and talk to you about that, answer your questions. You're not committing to anything, but let us know if you want info on baptism. And during the offering, at the end of the service here in just a moment, place that in the offering plate. And I will personally reach out to you, and we can talk about that. All right, let's pray.